1: Dramatic or sort of understated or what? This is a land
2: that prays
1: for a hero.
3: The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival.
2: You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse. Richard Weekly tirade and fist shake at the ridiculous and the sublime with an attempt to find solutions and inner peace all the while. (laughs) A chuckle chuckle in the background is a regular co conspirator and all round legend, Adam Grubb. How art thou? I art well. And uh, the marvellous. Co-founder of 3,000 Acres, the belle of Glasgow, the mother of giants. Kate Dundas is in the house. Hello. Hello. How you be?
4: Uh oh, very well. It's nice to have Adam back, isn't it?
2: It is lovely. Oh, thanks. It's lovely of you to say. Do you mean it?
4: A damn in it, With your little face. What a little
2: face! <laughs> I was pretty impressed last week when he and Scott Edgar showed up at the same time. And shit, it's like Bruce Wayne and Batman are actually separate people.
1: Oh, it's like two Clark Kents at once. Is what really what it is. <laughs> <laughs> two nerds in the room.
2: Beautiful behind the scenes uh, and running the panel is a smooth operator, Jed McCartney. Thank you very much. Hey, I want to give a very quick shout out. On my way down here tonight, I dropped some gear off at a friend's house, um, and he was he was building a deck. Uh, that's uh former guest Stephen pepper you know the um the wonderful septuagenarian mm. who was oh. off grid. who you thought his name was bob bob yeah 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 so he's uh making a deck at the moment and uh he's there <laughs> with his mate gary and gary's favorite station is triple r and he loves bigsy and the skull cave so hello gary and Stephen.
4: hello gary and bob <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> don't listen to that scottish person you wee uh, welshman um indeedy and uh We've got some fantastic guests on the show this evening. I'm going to hand over to Kate Dundas to introduce them.
4: Yes, wonderful guests on the show. Thanks, Kate Pleban, for putting us in contact. Um, Welcome to Catherine and Andy. Firstly, Catherine Sunderman is an architect and writer and worker of many master plans and strategic studies and all sorts of exciting things. Um, Catherine's also been working and living in Germany and the Netherlands and has an interest in how we can explore the Dutch approach to urbanism in our Melbourne context and that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. Hello also to Andy Fergus, an urban designer at the City of Melbourne um, and collaborator on architectural projects. Andy has a multidisciplinary background and is interested in all sorts of things including government, not-for-profit, private sector planning, urban design. So welcome to Catherine and Andy. Thanks for having us. So we're here tonight to talk about development, and particularly housing development and the way in which housing development is currently delivered in Melbourne. I think when we think about housing, the first thing we might think about is a traditional sub- suburban block, single house on a quarter acre block, often sometimes smaller, mm. or gigantic big high rises in the city. And there's a bit of medium density going on as well. So just how, how, in your opinion, how is housing in particular delivered at the moment in Melbourne? Well, I think I'm quite interested in this current
3: move towards more denser types of development. And as you say, those high rise blocks that we come to see as the new type of development. But I guess my concern about that is that this is housing as an investment vehicle rather than a place to live, rather than a home. And so I guess we're starting to look at other models where maybe you might try and encourage houses as places to live, as as a home that you can have... What
2: an outrageous concept. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Whoa, slowly.
3: So I guess guess the way we're framing it as deliberative development, and that is when the people who will live in the development are the ones that are actually designing and developing it themselves.
4: Mm. Okay, so at the moment what we would normally see is a plot of land going out to open market and a developer purchasing that land building on it for generally profit um, without much thought to who's going to be living there what might they want what type of way might they want to live um, and what's the long-term future of that site is that right
0: Yeah, it's a lot of guesswork. I mean, when you put it that way, it's really interesting because effectively the developer is taking a punt on who is likely to live in these spaces over a period of time. So they have to sort of measure the average of the population and design for the generic, this Mm. this product. And when that's for an investor market, it's very limited in its potential to provide for the the sort of diversity that we need in our population.
1: It's probably not even guaranteed that they're going to get it right for Mr J Average, right? Because their process isn't necessarily going to deliver. Even um, well, for instance, I had the um, I met a property developer recently and got to see what they'd come up with and and find out a little bit about their process. And a lot of it involved looking at pictures on Google Images and going, Well will have a piece of that, like that pot plant and um, that sculptural kind of thing, and these lifeless, horrible." Apartments came out of it And I ran into this woman Who Looked like she was From another universe You look like You could be my friend But you're in this Alienating (laughs) Like landscape I felt really sorry for her.
0: I think it's something really interesting you picked up on, which is the sort of branding. And often, both of us with backgrounds in architecture mm. are really interested in how architecture can positively influence development. But what you're identifying is the kind of skin-deep architecture as the branding, mm. where, mm. you know, the, the sexy woman in the, the clothing with the foliage and the planters on the balconies and all that sort of thing, this is how developers are kind of trying to differentiate a product, which is effectively the same apartment, whether it's in Box Hill, whether it's in Prahran, or whether it's in the central city. Mm.
3: And I guess they've been able to get away with it because there is such a demand for housing that people will kind of buy what's on offer. And I think also maybe... It's hard to tell when you look at a plan when you look at a plan and you don't have an architectural background what is this going to look like mm. what am I actually going to get
2: yeah mm. it all seems very homogenous one of the things we often rail against here is we talk about you know industrial food systems and the monoculture within that and even um, industrial you know we in the in the pipeline is a discussion about industrial clothing you know this the way fashion dictates what people wear rather than people and when I think about the last five years and family holidays we've taken which have included um, Hobart, Alice Springs, Cairns and Canberra the development inside of those um, metropolises and you know, large regional centres and on the outskirts looks identical so it doesn't, re- doesn't seem to do anything to respond to climate or the people or the location at all it's very much this one size fits all sizzler smorgasbord type <laughs> method you know? so we need to break out of that
0: how? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think the, the key thing is who is driving this development and how much say the people that live in it have over it. And what you've touched on there is that developers are basically having to make assumptions. And, and let's let's be reasonable, they're, they're having to take huge risks and make these assumptions without the information they need. Um, and that causes huge risks for them. Developers have risk mm-hmm. in their process, they don't always make a profit, sometimes they go bust. Mm-hmm. And so actually this model of deliberative development that Catherine touched upon um, offers an opportunity for the people who Who are going to live in a development in those houses in Alice Springs, in Cairns, or apartments in Sydney, Mm. it it allows these people to have control over the design of their living environment um, in a way that normal development doesn't have.
4: Mm. So before we go into a little bit more detail about what deliberative development is, can we just think about for a minute what the problem actually is with the apartments that are being developed at the moment. I know that there's... Where do we
0: start? Well there's (laughs) issues,
4: I mean there's technical issues with things like access to natural light Um, a a couple of other things I can think about is I grew up in apartments in Glasgow but they were big spacious, enough room for a family, lots of light, big windows you know access to windows there in the room rather than having a battle axe type access. luxurious. <laughs> so, you know, things that you'd think are quite simple, yeah, so what I mean what are some other problems with what we 're seeing delivered at the moment
3: well, I guess um all of that comes down to affordability as well, like land prices are so high that it 's come to this state where you have these tiny little apartments and I guess it's also about regulation. Like perhaps, um, I know things are changing now with the new kind of apartment design guidelines, but um, previously there's been limited regulation on what you can allow. And of course, if you want to make a profit, you're going to push that as far as you can and have these battle axe apartments and that mm. kind of so thing. So there's a drive
4: to deliver quantity over that's right. quality. And yep.
0: that, that's a kind of legacy thing too around the... the Um, viewing sort of uh, rental housing or apartments as a a transitional housing type. You know, it's between moving out of home and before you buy your your house in in the suburbs with your garden. And I think for our generation, one of the reasons, you know, Catherine and I are really interested in this professionally, but also personally, because, Mm -hmm. you know, our generation is really affected by this, the quality of apartments, which we will inevitably be living in. Mm -hmm. Um, But this ability to think about housing as a permanent, you know, family home allows you to start thinking about Glasgow apartments. We've, We've just... Been in the Netherlands and mm. the apartments that are standard there, we talk to people and they say, oh, the apartment sizes are really being crunched from 120 to 100 square metres. And in Melbourne, you know, a 100-square-metre apartment would be $2 million. It would be a penthouse on mm. top of the building. My so, house is
2: 120. My house you know, yeah. in the countryside is exactly. 120 square metres. Yeah. yeah. You know, a bit of a squeeze, but, yeah, going.
0: So. And, and maybe just to clarify... Um, I, I, what would you say typical, I'm going to have a bit of a guess at typical apartment sizes that I would see day to day at my city of Melbourne uh, I would see one bedroom apartment sizes between 45 and 52 square metres mm. think sort of 10 by 5 metres around about that yep. um, a two bedroom apartment would normally be in the order of 65 square metres and a three bedroom apartment would be between 80 and 90 mm. so to put that in perspective in the Netherlands we're seeing 100 square metre two bedroom apartments um, and upwards of that up to 160 square metres as being commonplace Mm. found at the first floor, not always in on, on the penthouse and, yeah. you know, affordable for the masses.
1: Mm. And, yeah. and yet possibly part of, l- like, a positive outcome would be... Well, it's not all about aiming for, for larger floor space. Mm. It's about not all. Um, a place that feels like home and and part of the collaborative or the deliberative process and the outcomes of it that that you um, promote involves shared spaces. So your private space might actually be smaller than otherwise.
3: Yeah, and I think you've um, touched on a local example that we often hear about, um, the nightingale model or the commons that was one of the first examples of that. So that is an apartment building that was not led by a developer but led by an architect and that came out of, that was Breathe architecture and so Jeremy McLeod from Breathe was a bit frustrated with what the market was developing and so in that example you do have shared facilities, you do have the shared laundry on the roof, you do have um, no car parking which seems to be what that project is known for but it has a lot of other benefits as well Um, in terms of cross ventilation, no air conditioning, it's got light to all your rooms, all of these things that should kind of be standard but aren't. Um, So I think yeah, that's that's kind of an example of what we could be looking at.
0: The small question is a really interesting one for us, I guess, because often it's focused on as the only aspects. There's a lot of debate with the apartment design codes about should we be setting minimums? And people often point to development like Cairo Apartments. Have you heard of Cairo in Fitzroy? It's on Nicholson Street, opposite the Carlton Gardens, 20... four-square-metre, one-bedroom apartments. Very, very small. From the 1930s? From the 1930s. Designed mm. for bachelors. Um, really quite incredible. But you know, the building occupies maybe 30% of its site. It has a huge green space area. These tiny mm. apartments are cross-ventilated. They have high ceilings. You, you can't take the the cell of the dwelling or the, the apartment mm. without considering its context and the open areas. So mm. what's happening at the moment is we're seeing a crunching of sizes of apartments and not the commensurate offering mm. of public or shared facilities so it's sort of take all give nothing yeah. um, whereas I think yeah, you're absolutely right if the shared facilities are a more legitimate offer then they can justify a smaller dwelling size. Hmm.
4: So we've touched now on deliberative development can you just give us a little bit of a definition about what it is?
0: <laughs> um, sure. <laughs> uh, I guess we position deliber- de- deliberative. development is obviously not our term. It's a common, common term used in talking about development more generally and the way you think about development. The way it's being used in the Melbourne context was coined by Andrea Sharum. Lyndall Bryant and Tom Elves, so I'll defer to them. Um, but effectively, it's this idea of bringing together or aggregating the residents who are going to live in a development. So rather than speculative development as the counterpoint, which is where you don't know who the future resident is, you make a guess, you sell off the plan, you go through marketing, real estate, etc., and take a risk mm-hmm. that they will settle on the end product. Um, instead of that, you lock in the people who are going to live in the development from the outset. Mm-hmm. And that the simple step is what makes it deliberative that you're engaging with the residents but it's about the flow and effects that that's that allows so once you're engaging with the people who are going to live in their environment they can start to shape it themselves they can be involved in consulting about the fixtures the finishes the spaces the orientation the sizes they want the communal facilities it unlocks this ability to think collectively mm. which is something we don't naturally do in Australia very well but through its kind of um, relationship that's established in deliberative development, we're forced into a situation where we make decisions together, which is a really powerful thing.
4: Yeah, it's kind of like co-housing, but designing your ideal house with the people you want to live with.
0: It's a really nice way to put it. One of the great terms we picked up um, in the Netherlands just recently was um, the their translation for what they call their co-housing um, was CPO, and it translated to collective private um, commissioning. Which is a really interesting idea because it takes this idea of, you know, uh, you might have your lovely house in North Fitzroy that you build a little extension on or something like that. Mm. And lots of people are doing lots of little individual things. What if you could collectively, privately commission an architect to design your housing together? Mm. I just think that's a really neat way of describing it um, and and takes that sort of value.
4: (laughs) So... When it comes to the economics of this, so we know how the economics of the developer-led model works. How does it work? Say I have some friends in my street and we might want to knock down three single dwellings and build an apartment block for 12 families. How, how does the financing of that work?
3: Yeah, I guess there's a spectrum of these types of things. So the Nightingale model is one example but in that case um, the money actually comes from angel investors so essentially it still is a developer and then the people that buy into it are, do the regular thing of putting down a deposit and then ultimately paying for the for the apartment but at the other end of the spectrum so you have an, an
1: angel investor is just someone that doesn't expect a huge yes, return? Yes, that's is that right. It's
3: kind of like okay. the minimum. Um, return. Exactly. Okay. Yep. yep. And or yeah, an ethical investor. Yep. So, um, but then in terms of the, the full kind of deliberative development heads towards something you see in Berlin um, called Bellgrouper. And so in that example, what they do over there is that the, you're with your friends, you come together and you um, collectively pool their money. They have the kind of financial um, mechanisms over there. They have the contracts. They have the means of getting funding from the bank. And they work with a develop manager and with an architect to deliver the housing that they want.
0: Yeah, and, and as Catherine mentioned, there's, there's so many different versions of this. So, deliberative development could mean just that a developer engages with their prospective residents, still makes a profit oh, and mm-hmm. on sells to them to the end. So, an example of that, I would say, would be the Assemble project, which is in um, Rosene Street in mm-hmm. Northcote, Clifton, Clifton, Clifton Hill. Hill. That development... Um, has had a really strong engagement process throughout its design in order to understand what prospective residents would want. For them, Mm -hmm. as developers, they removed risk from the process, but they empowered residents to sort of have some um, shaping of the design. The next one is, I guess, in the spectrum is Nightingale, which is this social impact, ethical investment, agile investment, whatever you want to call it, um, which is a sort of capped 15% profit, Mm -hmm. which is the minimum the banks will allow. Um, And then the residents have this totally transparent process where they can see exactly where all that money is being spent. There's no bluff between Mm. the development group and the purchaser group. Mm. They're very much connected. In fact, they meet face-to-face, the developers, which is so different to normal development. Beyond that, in a full collective model, you have no investor, no developer. You basically have the resident group form a, a trust, and they purchase the site together with their savings. Um, they all secure um, finance from a. Um, they all get their mortgages from the same bank together. They go and purchase the site, design it themselves, deliver it themselves without. Design any, it themselves. Uh, sorry, they uh, um, engage an architect well, to design yeah. it themselves, but they. Do you can need also an architect?
4: Like, do you need? A, I know you two are architects,
3: but do you need one? <laughs> Um, there are some examples in Germany where there is a lot of um, collective decision making and a lot of designing I think most of them do employ an architect but there's a real spectrum in terms of how much they get a say in terms of what will mm-hmm. happen and how it is structured and how much they lead that process and what we found over there is that you know you, there is this variety and and I don't know collective decision making is actually quite difficult mm-hmm. like and so <laughs> yeah. and so um, so, what some have found is that you kind of limit the amount of choices that you're allowed to have. We saw one project called R50 um, by, what was it? Um,
0: oh, I've just heard it. Heidi von Beckerer. <laughs>
3: That's right. Okay. So this is in Berlin, an excellent project. It's um, essentially with that one, they decided from the start they were going to lock down a few aspects and one of them was that they were going to use the same... Um, Building structure, they were going to like this quite restrictive idea of having a balcony all the way around the edge. It was kind of like a tower that was in isolation and then they're also going to lock down all of the materials that they'd use even within the apartments. Mm -hmm. But the freedom that they did allow was that each of the individuals could choose their own plan. They could completely Mm. configure however they wanted. And so what happened was that there was this process of Tetris where everyone was kind of fitting in with each other. And um, the reason they did lock those things down was obviously to make that process easier. Um, But obviously there's some cost savings as well with trying to lock down that element.
1: So how... the outside of their apartment wasn't set in... It wasn't, they weren't just moving internal walls. They were making a shape of their apartment and then they had to found, find a partner or someone to click yes, with. Yes, that's so right. That there are so two on each floor like
3: you might kind of or have two many? L's that kind of yeah, walk yeah. into each other and you might have one family that has four bedrooms meeting, like matching up with the single person that just mm-hmm. needs one. So...
0: And, and picture that, it's, so, it's sort of the the heavyweight structure of the, the lift and the stairs were fixed in the centre of the building plan mm. and then the perimeter all the way around the edges could kind of be however you wanted. Mm. So that's what enabled that and I think that's um, part of the role of an architect in the process is to help work out what you need to fix and what is up for grabs in the process. And from our, our recent trip in Berlin, we, we got to see a number of projects which use completely different approaches and this seemed to be one of the more successful approaches in terms of community agency was to have this agreement around things that allowed them to sort of buy in you got the the richest projects out of that
3: you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r fm in melbourne australia
4: and this is Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R, and we're currently talking to Andy Fergus and Catherine Sunderman about deliberative development and how we might be able to deliver housing in a different way in Melbourne. So we've been talking up until now about how apartment blocks are delivered through the private sector market generally for profit and thought a little bit about different models that exist, particularly in Germany and the Netherlands, where people get together, decide how they want to live, how they want their apartment to be, and then collaborate with an architect to deliver that. And we're also seeing it a little bit in Melbourne with things like the Nightingale development. What I would like to talk about is... When we live in a suburban block and have a single house, we have a certain level of power to make decisions over how we want to live. So I can choose to put solar panels on my roof and I can choose that that's how I want to get my energy. I can choose to collect rainwater and I can choose to grow my own food. When you live in an apartment block, in a more complicated decision-making structure, maybe not with access to communal spaces or the ability to decide to harness energy from the sun, what might be an alternative way to live in a denser way, so in an apartment block type scenario, but still have autonomy over those types of decision-making processes?
0: So are you talking about a kind of retrofit model or are you talking about a new building
4: Well, either or.
0: Sure. I think the retrofit one, I've just had on the top of my head. I was thinking of Westbury Terrace in St Kilda East. Does anyone know of this project? (laughs) Um, It's a remarkable project. I'm sure someone who lives there will call in or something like that. But um, it's a huge um, project that was delivered by a a Jewish emigre architect in the post-war period um, where you would think, you know, big body corporate, complex structure, difficult to make change. They took their concrete roof and entirely redesigned it as a green roof project and the kind of community that has arisen out of that collective decision making. This is not a De- a deliberative development but it shows how if you empower people to make decisions about their environment um, the scale effect of that of having 50 people make that decision and having a big roof is far larger than any individual making that decision so mm-hmm. i think that's a really great example and anyone who hasn't heard of that project look it up they have their own website the community to sort of what advertise it called? what they're doing i think it's just 30 36 westbury terrace dot com.au or something like that just try googling it and it should work um but in terms of purpose built buildings i think the the scale effect again is equally as relevant but what's more important and as i sort of touched on earlier was this once people are empowered to make decisions about electricity gas water etc in that environment rather than being forced to have the air conditioning condenser on their balcony etc they can make an economical decision which has a sustainability benefit so they could choose to put in something now that they might replace down the track when they have more money. They could choose to have a retail tenancy on the ground floor that generates rent for the building for the body corporate so it's a profit generating entity that they can reinvest back into sustainable infrastructure. Um, Nightingale, for example, is stripping out gas. There's not going to be any gas in the buildings. They're going to be Entirely electric and using solar panels and this sort of thing, so having people um, together to form to make these decisions there 's economies of scale, so they 're able to buy more expensive things they 're able to experiment with um, new technology. One of the things that's also come out of, say, Nightingale, for example, is uh, this ability to leverage off the kind of marketing potential. You know, Nightingale has a big profile. So, suppliers of um, sustainable infrastructure and products and things like that are interested in collaborating because they can see the benefits of having a test case, um, having the branding profile and the community benefits from the the sort of infrastructure quality of that.
1: And does some of these projects have like an ethical charter or anything or can that be worked into your the, the rules of your body corporate? So I guess the German model
0: we're talking about the Ballgrupper is quite interesting because they, they it's not you know a model or a brand, it's just a collective of individuals doing these, these projects um, but one of the things that's driven it is that they get sort of cheap uh, finance support through an organisation called KFW which is a kind of green loan system so because they have this sort of benefit if they do a high performing environmental building they get a financial benefit. So it's actually forcing a lot of these Bellgrouper projects to be um, super sustainable. Mm. Um, In terms of the ethical charter, that's something I guess um, I I can only speak from experience with Nightingale that there is absolutely a sort of Mm. requirement Um, Nightingale's also not like a brand it's a sort of model Um, the five of you could pull your resources together and and get an architect and and do a Nightingale project, anyone can do that.
1: Oh, We don't, it would be too much living together
4: (laughs) Oh I thought it
2: would be quite nice Maybe for a summer we'll see how it goes for a summer (laughs) <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I guess what, what
0: in order to ensure that every project that takes on this Nightingale um, intellectual property and this, this approach to the model um, is of suitable quality, they have to meet a series of criteria, they go through a licensing committee process where they're assessed for their uh, social environmental, economic it's a triple bottom line project and mm-hmm. you have to meet certain objectives to, mm-hmm. to achieve the license and people are knocked back if they don't achieve it, so mm-hmm. absolutely it's an ethical agenda
3: mm-hmm. but I also think there's other types of um, groups that could form together. Like it could be the sustainability um, element, but it could also be this project called City Niche that kind of came out a few years ago, which was like a website where essentially people could group together under certain themes. And this is something that you see in the Netherlands as well. And so I think there was one City Niche called um, Gay and Grey or something like that. So that was kind of looking at elderly housing for gay groups and so i think it's it's great that you can personalize in that way
4: mm-hmm.
0: I actually saw a project, it's interesting, I didn't know that, but I actually saw a project in, um, when we were in Berlin, which was um, a ball project delivered for elderly gay men, and they actually chose to give up a whole level of their building for elderly gay men with dementia, which is such a specific wow. housing uh, need, which is yeah. currently not met by the market, obviously.
2: No, the average developer in Melbourne's not taking <laughs> easy. Yeah, I was coming into town tonight, and I drove past a property for sale, and it said, oh, consider the possibilities, blah, 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 96 tram, and close to series, and there's probably, you know, it's, that's a very specific Brunswick East-centric kind of thing to appeal to, but it's also very, very current and it's, it's right now. I mean, the, the long-term view of these developments, I'm just wondering about if somebody uh, buys in as part of a, a share collective for some of these developments, but then they decide down the track they, they want to move on, they've got to go into state, things like that. Um, how does that work, that, the, the, the on-flow?
4: Where'd you find your next gay, grey, specific person? <laughs> yeah. with dementia, yeah.
2: to yeah. or, or what's the? I suppose because the whole thing's based on collective decision making. Mm-hmm. So if if you're moving out, if you're not, you're but one of ten or one of fifty or whatever it is. Um, and that person yeah you know, want to get their investment back financially, but they want to move on. What's the collective decision making for bringing others in?
3: Sure, I guess that varies from project to project, but definitely in terms of like the contract structure in Germany, I think it's quite easy that if someone doesn't want to continue and like I asked if there was if that was common like did people um, often move out of these projects or kind of even before it finished decide not to move in and I think the only reasons why this would happen would be if if there was, it was more like personal life situations. So if people got divorced or something like that, um, they would not continue the project. Um, so there are definitely if something like that happens there's definitely options to move out and then I guess often it would be the collective decision mm-hmm. to decide who could move in but yeah. often with these projects there's a waiting list a lot of people yeah, yeah. want to have a project that's more affordable than okay. what the
2: so it's not just like a little thing up at the milk bar where like yeah, housemate house <laughs> wants it no, no. <laughs>
0: yeah and I think we actually, of the projects we visited when we were in Berlin um, a number of them uh, particularly so a big yard was one of the projects we visited in Prenzlauer and uh, That's a substantial development. Is it 44 units or something? I can't remember exactly, but no one had changed in seven years since the completion of the building. There had, hadn't been a single-person turnover, which is quite remarkable. Mm. Um, but I It's, think, yeah, go it's go.
3: Inster- interesting to see what that does in terms of, like, for example, if there was an economic crisis, what you see with um, investment housing is that people might try and sell that to get out of it. But if you've bought into it, if you've invested, you've collectively developed, you're not going to sell that property. And so mm. it's interesting to see what that does for cities as well. I
0: think it's a really an important point in talking about communities as well, like In the city of Melbourne, it's quite interesting because so much of our population is a rental population um, and the transience is remarkably high, particularly in renewal areas where you have a lot of apartment towers. If you look at the um, DHS every... A quarter released statistics on um, tenancy duration for private mm. rental, and it's really fascinating because I think the averages were something like eleven or twelve months for a one-bedroom. So if you talk about building a community and you've got one year to trap, you know, get that person into their community mm-hmm. and um, create a sense of cohesion, it's impossible. You can't do it. You, yeah. you need people to be living in places longer in order to form permanent bonds to place and people, mm. um, which I think this model offers a really exciting opportunity to do. Mm-hmm. So there's
4: so much opportunity. Um, and why aren't we doing it more? What's the barriers? What's happening? Come on, Melbourne.
0: Um, me, maybe? No, <laughs> in terms of government. I mean, uh, serious, <laughs> seriously, um, the planning process is fraught. I don't know. Have any of you tried to negotiate the planning process? Katie. Kate, yes, that's your job. Me. That's a trick question. Well, and I've also
4: just opened a business. Sure. So I, f- from both ends, write planning policy yep. and then having tackled the planning scheme to try and open a business, that was a whole different world. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Any others? Uh, no, no. I, I never ring council for planning stuff. They're very busy, and I don't you know, disturb them. Ask,
0: <laughs> ask for forgiveness, not permission. Is totally. that
2: the <laughs> I work on the premise that if you can bolt an, a wheel to anything, then you can say it's mobile, and the, you know, just go with that. <laughs> um, There's a
0: great case law precedent that just came out
2: about that. So. <laughs> oh shit! Let's not supporting that. On you, actually. actually. Oh no. yes. <laughs> Man, madness one, the rest of the world zero.
1: You are listening to a Triple R podcast,
4: podcast, etc. (laughs) (laughs) And you are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 Triple R. We are talking to Andy Fergus and Catherine Sunderman about deliberative development. So, building places for people to live, apartment blocks specifically that are not developer-led but are community and architecture-led and offer different outcomes. Now, we've spoken about those are really brilliant examples across the world, particularly in Germany and Holland. It's very possible to deliver uh, housing that people love, that are able to accommodate families and have great outdoor spaces and windows that open and lovely things <laughs> like that why aren't we doing that more in Melbourne why do we just leave it open slather for developers to do as they please
0: Um, yeah so we, we I guess we started to touch on one of the barriers which is planning control so developers in Melbourne really have to take a huge amount of risk. They have to um, you know, act like cowboys, it's often written about in the media, because they simply don't know what they can achieve on a site. The planning system might say, you can have four stories, but the three developers before them have got six. So do they pay four stories worth or six stories worth? They have to take a huge degree of risk. Now, a developer can balance that, you know, every project against three others they've got going. If they take a loss on one, they make a profit on another. If you three pull your life savings together and take a risk on buying a site and you pay too much and can't get an approval, Mm. you're stuffed. So I think Mm. the risk that you're exposed through through the vagueness of the planning system is a massive issue. Mm. So there's two parts to that. One is having planning controls clearer that clearly articulate what they want and what you can achieve on a site, which means people will pay the right amount for them.
4: So you mean mandatory controls that can't be varied through VCAT?
0: Um, a, to a degree, yes, but a more intelligent form of mandatory control, I guess, or at least one that which can be measured on a, um, you know, performance controls that can be actually measured rather than being contestable through VCAT. Um, the other aspect of it, though, is planning processes. And as someone who is involved in the planning process every day at the City of Melbourne, um, there's a lot of suspicion around projects like this. You know, why, why should favours be given to a co-housing project over a market development mm. The benefits need to be more clearly communicated of this type of development, which is what we're doing with you here tonight, um, so that both the public and the council laws can really understand what is the value of this why should we support it. Mm. If we can clearly see the benefits that we've been talking about for 40 minutes now, um, mm. then suddenly we can create confidence and actually say, you know, if this, project, if this type of project comes to the city of Yarra, the city of Port Phillip, city of Melbourne, we can give it a faster process which means the holding costs are reduced for the development the risk is reduced so that's one way of dealing with it other barriers include legal and economic, but we're kind of working through them. It's very early days in Melbourne at the moment, but um, there's one initiative, for example, I don't know if you've heard of Property Collectives, um, but uh, a really intelligent guy, Tim Riley, uh, is working with uh, um, his company to do development syndicates where people will pull together their money and build um, a series of buildings together. One of those examples is McCracken Street in Northgate, mm-hmm. which is a great little townhouse development designed by Dan DeMant from Six Degrees, and they did, I think, four, three, story, family townhouses um, together and they were able to deliver that without a developer. So that's starting to occur. Mm -hmm. The difficulty comes with scale. So that's four townhouses. Um, Tim's been experimenting with up to 10 townhouses, I believe, um, in areas like West Melbourne and North Melbourne. But when you jump into an apartment building where the apartments are different, you might have two bedders, three bedders, one bedders. It's very difficult to structure that financially at the moment. But we start, we're learning very quickly and we've got um, really good people around us in Melbourne who are trying to crack the problem. Mm. Um, we've also had the benefit recently of um, Christian Ring, who's a sort of the... I guess the peak authority on this from Berlin Um, she's just been in Western Australia um, recently helping um, the government and academics there but finding ways that we can think about like stamp duty and taxation and uh, how we can structure the mortgages and the contracts between the purchases and uh, things like holding costs so there's a there's a range of things um, at the moment that are barriers but I think it's only a matter of time before we start to overcome Mm. them.
4: So what do these places, why are they different? What do they feel like to live in? What's, why? Sure. <laughs> I
3: guess um, I can draw on some examples that we sh- saw in Berlin. I think a really great one was the Big Yard project by Zanderoth architect And I think that's a project that you see a lot of the times um, to describe Balgrupo in general. And essentially that project, um, what makes it special is... No surprises, it's big yard. So it's like in the, in the centre, it has this collective space that um, everyone can use, like there were dogs running around, um, this kind of beautiful landscape. And then there's a few different typologies of housing. So there was kind of along the streetscape, there was a series of um, more like little, almost you could call it a terrace house, like kind of row housing. And so each of those were... You know a family has each one they have it's three stories it has a roof um, top garden Um, it has this cute little seat in the front of it so you can sit on there and watch the street Um, and then at the rear there's kind of um, two kind of double height apartments stuck on top of each other with a collective roof garden on the top of that as well so I guess how does it feel Um, definitely light filled. Um, generous but not excessive either like these aren't huge places but they have this generosity that you can't see so much in Melbourne Um, and so I guess that's the key thing that you can start to get Um, one thing I realised was that in Australia we have this very tense relationship with the concept of body corporate because in Australia you want to minimise how much you're spending on body corporate like, and it's, it ends up being these mean little shared spaces because you don't want to pay for maintenance or whatever. Whereas if you're collectively um, looking after this thing and you're trying to think about what you want it to be, you might actually choose to have a lush garden mm. or you might choose to have some other shared facilities and I think that's the kind of thing we can start to see and that's what a these type of developments could feel like.
0: I think another aspect of it that um, I, I personally really enjoyed was the personality that you see play out through the buildings, both in the way that each apartment has been shaped by the occupant but also in the way they display their personal belongings so the kind of messiness of urban life being visible rather than contained within these perfect glass facades Mm-hmm-hmm. so you start to see the plants dripping down the facade you see you know the bright colored chairs and the clothes on the balconies and this sort of life starts the, the social life of the building doesn 't stop at the entry it kind of sends out and I think that's a, a really special thing that we see in individual houses in our suburbs but we don't see in our collective environment so I think we'd be richer for it.
2: Mm, that's the reality of, of living isn't it? So we're just, um, we might have a minute or two but um, what, the front yard is a uh the um, the unspoken uh, hero of suburbia potentially, uh, Katie. You threw a really good wild card uh, discussion in. We've only got a couple of minutes. It's
4: going to be a very speedy well, card, is she? Mm,
2: but so so, maybe in context of what these guys are doing. What's the front yard doing at these places?
4: Um, well, I think we need to think about the suburbs and what the front yard is doing in the suburbs. So there's a really interesting article in the conversation by Grace Motlock and David Newstein. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, called Reinventing Density, Overcoming the Suburban Setback. So a setback is how far the house is from the pavement and then you end up with a front garden. And often your front garden is like some scabby bit of lawn with a bit of concrete and some mm. stones and nobody really knows quite what to do with their front yard. So occasionally you'll have you know rose bushes or long, unkempt grass mm. or <laughs> parterres with fabulous like french designs or you know they're a bit <laughs> random occasionally. though so, a few very, very occasionally yeah. i have overgrown vegetable boxes in my front garden in an attempt to be terribly communal and have conversations with my neighbors it worked although it's a bit feral at the moment anyway um so let's just have a little quick chat about what opportunities the front garden or the front yard provides us you know can we build tiny little homes in there like what can we do?
0: That, I like that this wild card is an article that Kath and I have both read in the last week, ironically. Um, we actually know David and, and um, Grace as well. So. Um I think that the personality comment that I just finished on Mm. in talking about the bio is completely relevant. Mm. These are the sites of where we express ourselves to the public. Mm. Um, And the idea of a front back as an aesthetic space only, I think, really frustrates me. Um, I I saw one
1: just incidentally around the corner from my place where there's some kind of weird curvy structure made out of um, polypipe and underneath it says... um Meeting for time travelers. Oh, wow. Meet here uh, last Friday.
2: (laughs) Sounds amazing. (laughs) That's pretty good. Anyway, please
1: continue. Yeah. <laughs> <Doesn't, laughs> no, I mean, that's highly related. productive
0: use of a front setback. So <laughs> I think you the... it's enterprising, it's, you know, it's, it's sociable, it's wonderful. But I think it's a really good point to rethink these spaces that we, we protect to have the distance from our neighbours. Um, we know from studies that the closer the setback is to the street, um, that the more interaction we have with the people opposite us across the other side of the street as well as our neighbours. But there's sort of a threshold. If you have no setback, you don't have a reason to be in the front yard so you need something in there that gives you a reason to be out there like your veggie patches Kate Um, so having a setback of instead of 10 meters or something like that down to something like three makes us value it more means we're our sort of spaces within our house are closer to the street but we still have a reason to be out there so I think that finding a balance is really important
4: so if you could pick a street in Preston for example, yeah. where the average setback might be six to seven metres and you have a whole street's worth of those setbacks, say a kilometre long of six to seven meters setback. That's a lot of space. Mm. What could you do in that land?
2: Wildlife corridor. Dep- or depending on the side of the street, if it was an east-west running street on the south side, you might grow food where it's got good sun exposure and on the north side where the front yard's in the southern end of the block, you might do a wildlife corridor with uh, taller trees and, and things like that. Mm. I think it depends on the context. So there's yeah, some contexts
0: where that would yeah. be amazing. There's other contexts where you could actually unlock the potential for people to have their own little home business or mm. micro-economy where they could produce things. So if you've got a 10-metre setback and you build a four-metre deep pod on the street with a bench seat, you can still keep your front garden and have a space to re, you know, for a different use. And I think that's about taking houses from a, a place of just consumption to one of production and mm. consumption, which is what's missing from the suburbs. Lovely.
4: We talked okay. about that with the architects when they were on with mm. Rob Adams recently. Um, about how we're going to have to consider how we live in the future and our residential zoning is going to really have to be rethought to allow those particular types of enterprise to happen from home. Indeed I love the is. idea of that, little pod setbacks.
2: Thank you, Andy and Catherine, for coming in. Fantastic. Thank you, Jed, for punching the buttons. Katie, awesome to see you again. We've only got a couple of shows left. One of them is coming up on barbecue, Sunday. It's going to be barbecue, barbecue day.
4: Barbecue,
2: right on. <laughs> (laughs) But Adam, beyond Barbecue Day, who are we going to be having in next week and why? Next week,
1: we will be talking with Alara Patterson, who is from SEED, which is the first climate organisation completely run by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people.
2: We will see you at Barbie Day. But until then, have all the fun.
1: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.